the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. This is the Dyson House podcast, a series that investigates and demystifies real issues in international affairs. India, the most populous democracy in the world, is asserting itself as a force on the world stage at an impressive rate. By 2024, it's projected that India will surpass China in population growth, and a massive proportion of this booming population are young people. In fact, their median age is currently sitting at 27.3 years. This incredibly young population has provided India with a massive workforce. With about 1 million people entering the labour force every month, the demand for growth is ever-present. And with development this rapid, there are bound to be complications. This episode saw us sit down with Professor Craig Jeffrey, Director of the Australian India Institute, to discuss some of the challenges facing youth in India, the surprising innovations employed to overcome them, and the social phenomenon of time pass. We started this interview off with a little bit about Professor Craig Jeffrey's background. Became quickly fascinated by the country, and there was an opportunity then to go and do a PhD that involved fieldwork in North India. I went and I spent mm. about 15 months in western Uttar Pradesh in a place called Meerut district. That's an doing... incredibly long time to do that as well. It was quite a long time. I mean, that, that was pretty much the standard in human geography and anthropology at that time. I then came back, wrote that up, and subsequently did a series of projects on western Uttar Pradesh during the 2000s. I lived in Bijnor district in a similar part of India for a couple of years. I went back to Meerut district and did a project for a year in 2004-2005. And then I've done shorter term projects in Uttar Pradesh and more recently in the North Indian state of Uttarakhand uh, with my partner Jane Dyson, who's also an academic. Dr. Jane Dyson is based in the School of Geography here at the University of Melbourne. And that research throughout that what is it now, a nearly 25-year period, has focused mainly on youth and issues related to youth, like education, politics, social change, inequality. Uh, and I've looked at those issues, particularly through doing interviews and participant observation and ethnographic methods with young people in India. I speak Hindi and Urdu, and I understand and speak a little bit of Garwali, which is a language spoken in Uttarakhand. That's amazing that you've managed to pick up these languages throughout your research as well. Has this been a deliberate sort of thing where you were like, I have to learn these if I'm going to be able to effectively research this? Or was it a passion project? Well, I think it would be possible to do similar types of research without language skills. What language provides is the capacity to, I think, delve deeper into some of the motivations and experiences of young people in India that aren't easy to translate. It gives one a much closer sense for the texture of people's activities, ideas, visions for the future. So when I started doing research, I, I had pretty thin grasp of Hindi. I did spend six months at a language school in North India, but still it's taken really uh, time and experience and working with people in India to, to develop the, to a point where I can actually do all my interviews in in Hindi, which is the case now. I would imagine there would be some incredibly subtle 
cultural nuances when it comes to learning these languages, picking them up and feeling like you're effectively communicating with them. I just wanted to move on really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned before that your work found you focusing on young people. Um, and I noticed that there was a specific uh, focus on unemployed young men uh, and like farmers from a, 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 a what it says, a threatened middle class. And this was in your research in Uttar Pradesh. That's right. I was wondering if you could unpack these two different groups and maybe provide some context as to how this middle class is being threatened. Of course. So when I was, when I set out to do research in the early to mid 1990s, one of the key questions that was occupying social scientists in India and outside India at the time was what have been the effects of the green revolution in Indian agriculture on Indian society? And one aspect of that question was, well, how are the farmers who've become relatively wealthy through growing new types of crops and applying new technologies to agriculture, spending their money? So historically, work in rural India had been with the poor, and the majority of the population had been poor, but suddenly you had in places like Uttar Pradesh, the emergence of a type of middle class. They weren't from the historic big landlord or princely families. They were people who were, who owned their own land and who worked on their own land. But they'd become quite wealthy through selling especially sugarcane, wheat, rice and other agricultural crops. So I set out to understand, well, what are they doing with their money? And what I found pretty quickly, yeah. first of all, that I wasn't really an economic geographer. I wasn't terribly interested in household economics. But what I was interested in was how these families were investing in their own families, investing in education, investing in marriage via the payment of dowries. And what was very obvious is that farmers didn't want their children to follow them into their own occupation. So if you think around the world, quite often people want their children to do the same thing that they do. Yeah. Doctors want their children to be doctors, in my experience. Yeah, yeah that's a good one. And quite often, farmers in, in different parts of the world want their children to take on their farms. Now, where I was working, this wasn't the case. The farmers I was working with wanted their sons and daughters to go and work in urban areas, in professional service jobs, and they invested a lot of money in educating their sons and increasingly also their daughters in order to be competitive for either public sector white-collar work or some of the emerging jobs in the private sector. And this was as a means of breaking out of that. Exactly. Breaking out of the rural, breaking out of agriculture, and getting, if possible, into work in metropolitan India. Now, that strategy wasn't successful because lots of these young people were emerging onto the employment market at a time when the Indian economy wasn't generating very many jobs. And there was such a large increase in the number of young people who had high school pass or bachelor's degrees that the demand for those jobs vastly overwhelmed the supply. So you started to see instances in which hundreds or even in some cases thousands of people were applying for a single government job as you know, a conductor on a, on a state bus or uh, as an as officer in a, a clerk in a, in a government bureaucracy. So that was the threat, was this sense of, well, that these farmers did make money in agriculture, but they weren't successfully converting that into access to employment outside of 
of farming. That is interesting because it seems like an unprecedented sort of demographic problem. But was there any, I don't know if you'd be able to answer this, but is there, was there any way, could anyone have predicted this was going to happen if you were looking at population growth and, and things like that? Or was this just an unprecedented issue? The scale of it was unprecedented, but the issue itself had a long history. So you can go back to colonial writings on India and hear references to the educated, unemployed youth, even right back to the 1870s. It was flagged as a big problem in a book that uh, the sociologist Ronald Dorr wrote in 1970 called The Diploma Disease, where he described India as the country of the BA bus conductor. But by the 1990s, this problem had become much more acute. So you were seeing far larger numbers of young people investing in education and as a result, far larger numbers having to revise down their ambitions when they reached their 20s and mid-20s and recognise that actually they couldn't all become officers in the, in, in, the, in the civil services or senior police officials or the kinds of jobs that they wanted. And I've come across a term in your research that you've used to describe these uh, unemployed and educated mm. young people doing uh, the phrase time pass. I was wondering if you could explain what this phrase means because I found it was a very fascinating phenomenon. Sure. So in, in the period between 2004 and 2005, I spent a year living close to one of the big degree colleges in North India. And I noticed that a lot of the young people who were in that college or who'd recently graduated from that college described their lives as ones of time pass. And they did that partly seriously and partly semi-humorously. The word time pass, on the one hand, communicated a sense of social suffering. And it was a, it, it's a word that means, in part, trying to counter boredom and avoid negative introspection through doing things, finding distractions, whether that's playing cards, reading a newspaper, watching the city. It's about staving off a sense of loss and, and fear and everything else. So time passes in to one, this expression of social suffering. It's also, though, I think, for many of these young men, a way of actually marking where they are in society and establishing a sense of community within that group of educated, unemployed urban youth. So it was used in jokes. There was a kind of humorous culture around passing time. It was like a self-deprecating exactly. sort of self-defense Like mechanism. a kind of ironic self-deprecating yeah. way of saying, actually, we are, we're in this curious situation. And it also was a means of distinguishing them from the people who they really thought were wasting time, which was the urban labourers. Okay, right. So they weren't just... Because that's interesting. The, 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 when you hear the phrase, and when I first read about it, mm. I assumed it implied something to do with being idle. But really, it's the opposite. It's, it's almost like trying to explain that even though you're unemployed, you're staying busy. In a sense, it's it's about um, marking your social position as people waiting for something better to come along. 
It implies that you're looking for more. Exactly. Uh, so your status yeah. is provisional. Right. Whereas if you were a laborer on the street looking to, to get a job as you know, painting someone's house for the day or yeah. you know, being a stonemason for the day and lo- you see lots of those people standing on street corners in Mirat, they were the people who they were trying to define themselves against. It's, it's so fascinating. It's, and, and, and also that the idea of time pass purvey, provided... A, a basis for all sorts of interesting cultural activity and even social mobilization around issues because uh, people would develop friendships. Sometimes they develop bonds across caste and religious lines that were quite unusual and un, in some senses unprecedented. And, and it came out of this shared sense of being in limbo. Well, you've actually answered my next question, right. which was, is this... Can this be considered a unique form of social bonding? Is this not necessarily a negative consequence of social inequality? No, I, th- I think it's a, both a, you know, a reflection of a type of crisis in India at the time of unemployment and one that persists in many respects. And it's also a, a, an indicator of young people's agency, their active capacity to respond to that situation in a creative way, and the creative way was to was to develop this culture of of time pass, of hanging out, that then served, I, I suppose, for, for, for a while to give them a sense of meaning and of participating in in social life. Now these something like this seems it seems like a complicated social issue. And I feel like there would be things that further complicated. I was wondering if there was class divisions mm. or gender divisions between the people who get to participate in yeah, the time pass. That's right. Well, I think um, one of the points that many young people made to me was that time pass is temporary, that you can't <laughs> right. often afford to carry on doing time pass for a long time unless you're very wealthy yes. and you have parents or or other relatives and supporters who are willing to finance you hanging out there's an opportunity cost because you're not actually doing the types of job that are available which is manual labor or going back to work on a family farm so those with fewer household resources often had to stop doing time pass pretty quickly and go back and accept that they were going to have to work on on their small farm or do manual labor or they had to get whatever job was available in the city, which might be selling mobile phones or setting up a, a shop stall. That wasn't what they were expecting to do, but it provided some kind of basic income. So there was that kind of division between those who could afford to do time pass for a long time and those who couldn't. And, and there was also a, a gender dimension to this because it was mainly men who were who had the capacity to hang out in public settings and advertise their idleness. It was much more difficult for young women to do that in a society where patriarchal norms were and are still quite strong. So it was simply dangerous for young women to be in some of these spaces at some times of the day. Uh, And also there was less tolerance within the university because a lot of the people I was working with were connected to a university or among parents of young women spending many years talking about themselves doing time pass. The fear there was that they would get a reputation that would uh, be 
that would militate against them making a good marriage in the arranged marriage system. Right. Yes, so it is, as always, more complicated beneath the surface than it first appears. Yes. When we... When you mentioned uh, agency among young people before, yes. uh, I found that that relates to this idea of work and enterprise amongst youth in India. Sure. And there's a word that uh, I came across in your research, and you're going to have to forgive me if I mispronounce yeah. this, but jugad? It's jugad. Jugad. Yeah. yeah. How, how would you describe this term and its meaning in Indian society? Well, it's a Hindi term that's best described through an image, which then the image would be you know, fixing an old car fan belt with a pair of tights. It's like this notion of finding a make-do-and-mend way of managing a problem or creating a, a, a quick-fix solution. It's a sort of life-hack kind of type of idea. Yep. But often it's splicing together materials from one sphere, say the traditional, with materials from another sphere, say uh, the modern. So if right. your watch breaks, you might pick up a little thin twig and insert it in your watch and it would suddenly work again. That would be an example of jugar. You'd kind of splice together two different things to make a solution. And this term comes out of, I suppose, traditions and histories of, of thrift and shrewdness and pragmatism in rural India and there are parallel terms in lots of other countries. You think about um, the notion of bush mechanics in, yeah. in the in the in Australia, or the idea of jerry rigging in the the US. So it's not there's other kind of notions that are analogous to jugar in India. It kind of emerges out of sort of traditions of rural thrift, and it has then been picked up by even the Indian government as a way of thinking about a distinctive Indian approach to entrepreneurship that's about playfulness, about creative solutions, about quick fixes. And uh, there was a moment in uh, the late 2000s, early 2010s, around 2010, 2011, when the Indian government was using Jugad as a a way of thinking about Indian innovation. And the National Innovation Council, I think it was called, said we need a million jugars across India. That we need to sort of now. Now the debate has moved on a little bit, and um, and the Indian government isn't talking so much about jugar. Yeah. And one of the reasons it isn't talking so much about jugar is that the term itself is is so faces both ways. To one, to some extent, it's positive, but to another extent, it's also sort of negative. It's associated with shoddiness oh. with you with with even with um a kind of sly cunning or it has negative moral connotations like if i bribed you you know that might be seen as a form of jugar in certain contexts right. so, because it's still a clever way of solving a problem exactly but exactly it could often leak into a possibly a mild form of corruption exactly yep. exactly yeah and it's actually used to euphemize certain forms of corruption so say you wanted entry into the university of melbourne mm. and you were denied because you didn't have the grades and I, you said to me oh craig you're a professor in the university maybe you can maybe you can do some jugard to get yeah. <laughs> i'd say no sorry the university of melbourne doesn't work yes. like that but that would be one of the ways in which the term is used. And if that term ends up becoming a way of identifying 
yourself in terms of an, a nationalism mm. or like a national identity, it would it does seem quite odd that you would have to balance it against these positive and negatives. I could understand why the government was it was actually I should ask, did the government purposely stop using this phrase as a way of trying to define um, how people worked because of these negative connotations or did they just find it wasn't uh, relevant to what they were working towards? I, I think that it, that probably, and I haven't talked to government agencies about this, but yes. my perception would be that they probably regarded it as, as something that sounded patronising. Right, yeah. And that you know, Indian technology is... I mean, very clearly in many sectors, leading the world. You know, think about yeah, the IT absolutely. and software. Yeah. So there isn't anything shoddy or spliced together or, or, or you know, um, jerry-rigged about that kind of technology. It's yes. very clearly world-leading. So I suppose the term sort of became, <clears throat> in some circles, embarrassing. It does rem- remain, however, a term that's used in managerial literature <laughs> to discuss... Uh, um, the need for flexibility, adroitness yeah. in the moment solutions. So it still has this life in in management studies as a kind of idea right. for for advancing the economy and entrepreneurialism. There's something ironic about the fact that this term started off in these poorer communities and now it's being used in managerial buzz. Exactly. That's, that's, yeah, that's yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Has this um has this created a sense of community in these poorer areas then or has it led to something that could be identified as a sense of civil society maybe amongst right, youth in india right uh, i think the um the best way to, for thinking about jugara is in relation to the work of an anthropologist michael hertzfeld who yeah. hasn't written explicitly on jugara but what he's written about is the idea of intimate cultures and Herzog makes this very interesting argument mm. that in every country around the world, mm. people in that country have uh, certain kinds of self-stereotype about their own country, which give insiders a sense of community, but which are embarrassing when exposed to outsiders. A cultural cringe. Exactly. Yeah. So a kind of sort of self-story so the self-story that lots of people will say in in india is well you know we are a nation of jugad we're a nation of adjust which is a word that has entered into indian languages from english you know so we we adjust we do jugad you know if you get on a on a on a vehicle that says it's for four people and seven people will travel on it because that's adjust and this is india you know and 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 it's a and, and it's faintly funny, but but is often seen as being embarrassing when when it becomes a, an aspect of of um, external comment. Yeah, or derision or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think there's been a move now away from Jugar in in um, in India in the way that say uh, you know the Greek state don't want people in Greek restaurants to be smashing plates at the end of the meal. Like yeah. It's a kind of stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. that that actually. You want to you want to sort of push against rather than celebrate. Yeah, but there was a moment where Jugar was being sort of celebrated a little bit more. Uh, well, I guess as a sort of way to round all this off, yeah. looking towards the future. Yeah, do you see this 
do you see this shedding of a patronizing or self-effacing self-image? Do you see that disappearing and do you see more of a cohesive sense of identity behind youth in India? Is this, as the country's economy grows, as they become more of a presence on the world stage, are they going to shed this self-image and move towards, or do you see this moving towards somewhere specific? Can you see something happening in the future? I think it's, it's really complicated. The, the, it, it would be wrong to suggest that colonialism had some kind of general effect on the Indian mood and psyche in the 40 to 50 years after independence, which you know, would be one way to answer your question. Yes, mm. you know, there was this sort of sense of you know, having to recover from colonialism in the first 40, 50 years, and now there's a newfound self-confidence that's certainly one of the stories that's told about India is now India is rising. There's a new self-confidence. They're a major player on the world stage. I think all those things, that's a story that, that has many, many elements of truth about it. I've just spoken about the importance mm. of India as a technological power. It's, it's clearly a major centre culturally in terms of Bollywood, which is a good example because that term originally was a diminutive and patronising term for Indian cinema well, and is now no longer so. No, not so at all. there's a yeah. good example of, of what we're talking about. But I think I would go back to my, maybe and academics do tend to say this, my argument that it is complicated because mm. India is a very, very diverse country regionally and also socially. So there's the India of the Indian upper middle class that you might speak to in Delhi, for whom this story of India rising really resonates. There are many sections of Indian society that are facing very stiff challenges and for whom the past 70 years or 75 years have not been necessarily a story simply of shrugging off a former inferiority complex mm, and mm. achieving a new self-confidence. Yeah. So one has to be constantly aware of the different ways in which India can be narrated and how that relates to the social and economic condition of people on the ground. So another answer that people would give to this question is, well, there are two Indias. There's an India that's advancing very fast, that has newfound confidence, that's bestriding the world stage, that's connected to the US, to Australia, Singapore. But there's another India that is increasingly disconnected, that is rural, that is uh, facing pressing agrarian crises, that lacks access to effective food, that is is struggling in in lots of ways. Uh, And many of those people are women. Many of them are not from the upper caste Hindu background. They're from other minority communities. And, and, And the challenges they face are stiff. Now, of course, India recognises that and is working very hard for the uplift of people and has made a lot of huge amount of progress in a short period of time in terms of income poverty. But it's a, it's a very... The, the problems of, of disadvantage are really very entrenched, multifaceted and deep. And so it's, it's tricky to find quick solutions. I feel that as we're running out of time, we've opened up a whole other area of discussion. But uh, I would just like to say, Craig, thank you so much for taking the time out. Of course. To chat with us today. I've uh, really enjoyed it and it's been very insightful. Thank you very much. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Dyson House Podcast. 